Welcome to another edition of the In Search SEO Podcast, where we paint the town red with search marketing insights. This week, we talk content opportunities with the author of Marketing Now as the one, the only, David Bain joins us, where we'll talk about emerging content opportunities, where they lay, how to best utilize audio and video content, and unifying online and offline content. Plus, we talk the impact of the November 2019 Google local update on local pack ranking. So get ready for just a wee bit of data, literally a wee bit of data. I am your host, Morty Hilberstein. I am joined by the tranquil yet turbulent she who transcends all contradictions, Sapir Carabello. Hello. <laughs> hello. <laughs> I don't even get a Morty anymore. Just hello. You, you, you sound like you a bad deserve. date when they wake up in the morning. You hello. <laughs> God's sake. <laughs> Had a lot of those, Morty. Oh, no comment. <laughs> okay. No. The answer is no. Unequivocally no. I'm awful klempt, by the way. Mm. Which, if you don't know, that's an old word. It's a Yiddish I word. Don't, I don't, but if I you don't watch Saturday Night Live from the 90s, okay. there was a Mike Myers skit. Mike Myers, Awesome Powers. I know you don't know who that is. Um, no, he, no. He was in a Madonna's music video. Okay, great. Right? So you know who he is. Great. He used to be on a show called Saturday Night Live. Okay. Which you may SNL. have heard of. Yes, SNL. And he had a skit saw, where he played this old woman and goes, I'm all verklempt. So okay. I'm all stuffed up. I still have a cold. That's I nice. cannot shake this thing. Okay. I think I have a problem. <laughs> or an infection. <laughs> okay. Or something. You should check it out. Yeah, I don't like doctors. Anyway, do not forget we put out a new episode of the In Search SEO podcast each and every Tuesday, you can find it on the Rank Ranger blog. You can find it on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on Spotify. And, of course, you may subscribe on iTunes. Um, also, do not forget, um, do you want to track your presence, your video presence on the SERP? How does your domain fare in the SERP's video carousel? How about your YouTube channel? How's that faring on the SERP? Find out with Rank Ranger's multifaceted video box tracking as part of Rank Ranger's Rank Insight Report. Try it now. 14 days free. No credit card needed. That's nice. Yep, that's good, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I have a cold, too, and I pulled it off. <laughs> there we go. Okay, folks, before we get going, where content opportunities are now, where they lie, what you should be thinking about when finding content opportunities, let's take a look at the impact of the recently confirmed November 2019 local update as we are going data. So, on December 3rd, Google announced that it has started to run a local algorithm update in early November that finished its rollout towards the end of the month. The update makes use of Google's neural matching. So, a lot to unpack there. Mm -hmm. Okay, first off, this makes a lot of sense. Joy Hawkins, um, super duper SEO, local SEO guru, uh, per usual, was correct. Okay, she was all over this a few weeks ago. If you look back, she basically calls it and says that what's going on in the local world with these, you know, sort of update that was going on that no one could really pinpoint and confirm was um, it had nothing to do with proximity, but had to do with relevance. And she said all sorts of businesses who have like, you know, loose descriptions or vague descriptions are now being um, shown in the local listings and, on, on, and, and the organic rankings for local queries. So she called it. Um, which makes sense because of neural matching. It has nothing to do with proximity. Um, two, in case you don't forget, or in case you have forgotten, rather, 
okay, what Neural Matching is. Neural Matching came out in October 2018, where it came out. Google announced in October 2018 as part of its 20th anniversary updates. Um, and Google basically said they have this neural matching that it looks to connect loosely described phraseology to precise concepts. So in real terms, yeah. um, for example, if I search for walking with the ball in basketball, Google knows that this relates to the concept of a basketball rule known as traveling. Because in basketball, in case you don't know, you must bounce the ball. You <laughs> cannot walk with the ball. And when you walk with the ball, it's called traveling. So Google takes that loosely described phraseology of walking with the ball in basketball rules, whatever, and says, okay, you really mean traveling. Okay, that's like a super synonym, as Google calls it. Okay. Um, also, at the local level, the use of neural matching means that businesses, as, as Joy Hawk has pointed out, that may have vague names or descriptions, etc., um, can be connected to specific local verticals, which means different businesses are now ranking organically and within the local pack because now they're all of a sudden they're relevant, whereas before they weren't relevant. Great. Um, now, some have said, a little myth-busting here, <laughs> okay, some have said that the use of neural matching at the local level means more local packs, and that is totally not true. And it makes no sense. Okay. Let me explain. explain. Um, one, via our handy-dandy SERP feature tracker, you can clearly see that the number of local packs has stayed the same. Handy-dandy? Handy-dandy. like, why would you describe Gee golly, <laughs> handy-dandy. Oh Let's go back to the 50s and eat some uh, fruitcake. Ah. <sighs> Well, I drive in my Chevrolet. <laughs> you wish. I wish I had a Chevrolet. That'd be awesome. Okay, okay. Right now, I drive like a minivan, so anything's better. Um, okay. Two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The fact that more local packs don't exist makes tons of sense. Okay. Why? Because neural matching does not tell Google which queries have local intent and don't have local intent. There's nothing to do with that. Neural matching tells Google what businesses are now possibly relevant to a query with a known local intent. Mm. Okay, so it's more to do with what's relevant versus irrelevant versus what has a local intent, what doesn't have a local intent. Hence, local packs have stayed the same. So mm -hmm. that's just know that. Okay. okay. That said, I wanted to have a look and see how the updated impact local pack listings because that makes sense, right? Uh, so I did a mini mini study. <laughs> Which mini, I mini. peered chewed me out for, but we'll, mini, we'll mini. explain. Mini, mini study. Mini, mini. That's okay. So I call it mini, mini um, because that's all I had time for, literally. And I wanted to take a look at the data and see if there was a trend. And then, yes, there is a trend mm -hmm. with my mini, mini study, whatever Good. you want to call it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to share that with you. Okay. That's why we're going data. Got it? Got it. Great. <laughs> okay. Full study forthcoming. I hope if I have time, we'll see how it goes. I'm in the middle of it, so I don't know. It's going okay. Maybe we'll see. Depends how much time I have, which is none. I have no time. But let's see if I can pull it off anyway. Anyway, so what I did was like this. I took 10 different local businesses, and I compared their total number of local pack listings. Um, not total as in all of them, as in total as in across the keywords I'm tracking for that business. Mm -hmm. Okay? In my little research campaigns that I've set up. Um, <laughs> mini, mini. Mini, mini. Study. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and there's a nice mix. There's some hotels in there, some restaurants, some local shops. Uh, and what I did was I compared the total number of local pack listings for each business across two 45-day periods. Now, you'll guess one period is during or before, throughout, and then after the the November local update. So that was um, specifically 
October 15th through the start of December. Again, that reflects the period right before, during, and after the local update. The other period, the other 45-day period I looked at was baseline. Okay, so that ran from mid-July through the end of August. And again, that's my baseline period. There's nothing really going on algorithmically. (laughs) That's when your brain moves faster than your mouth. Right. That's what happens. Keep telling yourself that. And I have a cold. Have pity on me. <laughs> no pity for no the... pity. Stiff upper lip. Get going. Let's go. Okay. Um, then yeah. what I did was I recorded the number of local pack listings each business had um, at three different instances over a forty over each of these 45-day periods. So if that makes no sense to you, let me spell it out in a real example. Okay. Okay. So for argument's sake, let's say the first business I looked at was Allen's Apple Farm, which it wasn't. Because <laughs> I don't know who Allen is. I don't like apples. You don't like apples? I don't like, I don't, in pie. I don't like eating apples. Like, <sighs> like yeah, it's not my thing. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and I recorded that they have, let's say, five, um, five local pack listings over all of the keywords we're tracking for them on July 15th. Then they had seven on October, or not, August 15th, rather. And then eight on September 1st, let's okay. say, or August 30th, whatever day I use. I don't remember. And <laughs> I should, right? And then I did the same thing for the period spanning October 15th through December 1st, okay? Mm-hmm. Actually, I did it through December 3rd because it was easier based upon, yeah, just whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, December 1st. It doesn't okay. matter, yeah. okay? You got it so far? So far, so good. Still waiting for the juicy stuff, so get on with it. Okay, so the first thing I wanted to see was how volatile the local pack was during the update period relative to the baseline period. So easy enough, I record the number of listing changes, right? Either a listing gained or lost by the business in the local pack um, from one recording date to the next and then did an average. Huh. Okay. It's confusing, but it's not. Okay. It sounds really confusing, I know, but it's really not. It's like really simple and you're going (laughs) to... You, you're being gracious and playing along with me because you already tuned me out for this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, even if you're not interested in what I'm saying right now, you're, you should be interested in the fact that I'm going to get chewed out by Sapir in a minute. Oh, no. Okay, so let's say Alan's Apple Farm had 10 local pack listings on October 15th and then 20 local pack listings for the keyword data set on November 15th. So that's 10 listing changes, right? Okay. okay. Now let's say that um, Forest's Fur Shop had 20 local pack listings on October 15th and then lost 10 by November 15th. That's, again, 10 listing changes. Okay, That means the average number of listing changes for these two business entities for that time span is... I'm going to take a wild guess and say 10. Yes, I made it simple for you. Mm-hmm. Okay, They both have the same oh, wow, number. So you. 10 so plus 10 is 20 divided by 2 is still... 10. Look Thank at that. I know numbers. Wow. I do math. <laughs> okay, so 10 <laughs> listing changes. Okay, so I calculated that for each sub period I recorded and came up with an average. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't matter. Here's the data. Right? Okay? Of course. Fine. The <laughs> average number of local pack listing changes seen for a business over the baseline period was 2.55. The average number of local pack listing changes for a business. Over the update period, meaning the number of changes happening in the local pack over the 45-day period during the actual update or before, during, and after the update, that period was 4.1. Okay, so 2.55 was the average local pack listing changes before the update, during the baseline period. Okay, during the update, throughout the update, before and after, 4.1 average listing changes. 
way more listing changes. Now, true me out. What's the what's the major <laughs> limitation with this data? No, no, I I I would have used a different formula to yes. calculate. Yes. The, you know the average. We all would have. Right. There's two ways. Okay. <laughs> and and use a bigger you know sample size. Because right, there's two ways you can go about this. Okay. But, okay. But yeah, explain, uh, explain. No, no. I mean, it's it's. You can be math. critical of me. It's, it's okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I I would have used a different. Like what? What have you done? What would you have done? Um, you just took. Um, you know, the number, the n- ranking number in the beginning of the the, the right, period begin, right, the, and then right, right, three three points. Over I the would, I period. would, I would have taken a daily, right. Um, mm-hmm. you know, right. Um, you would have tracked a daily and right. seen right, seen what the actual volatility is each from day to day over a forty-five day period. Exactly. Bef- right during the baseline period and then during the actual update period. Correct. Right. Like I said, I had no time. Mm-hmm. Or there's the way. There's two ways you go about this. You could do that. Okay, or you can do what I did, right? Take forty-five day period, let's say, check out three different spots during each of those forty-five day periods, but you have to do way more, way more instances, way more businesses. So, like, right. as opposed to looking at ten businesses, right, I should have looked right. at a thousand. Correct. All right, and then you can pull out a trend. Right. You are absolutely correct. Like I said before, I don't have time. <laughs> I, li- I literally didn't have time, <laughs> but I was looking at the update anyway, and I was curious mm-hmm. what was going on. And okay, mm-hmm. and I did this not for the podcast, like just for my own curiosity, to see what was going on. That's cute. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> I get so excited by Google updates. I'm like, yay, another update. Woohoo. Um, and I saw a pattern, so I figured I might as well talk about it. So, yes, okay, what Sapir is so elegantly trying to say is there's a major limitation with the data here. Right. One, I didn't look at enough instances, enough businesses. And if I did it this way, just looking at 10 businesses, I should have looked at it every single day for a 45 day period, and I didn't. Mm. Okay? So, yes. You should take this with a major grain of salt. All I am trying to do here, I am not trying to say here, here's the volatility rate before the update. Here's the volatility rate after the update. I'm simply trying to point out a trend that local pack listings as a result of the 29, local tw- November, whatever it's called, the, the, the local update <laughs> November 2019. Not to say Google your names. <laughs> the local Google 1997 update. Please. Okay. The November 2019 local update. Right was more volatile than before the update. Okay, the extent to which I agree, you cannot take what I'm saying, say, okay, that's the exact numbers. Okay, but there's a nice trend here. It seems that it's far more volatile. It is okay. interesting. Yes. Okay, now there is another problem with this data. And that is, it's possible with all this volatility, I'm showing that basically there's like almost double the volatility during the update versus before the update in, within the local pack listings. Okay, with all of that, the net local pack listing gain or losses for these businesses could be zero. What do you mean? It's pot. Let's take it. Let's take what was it? Allen's Apple Farm. Okay, let's take <laughs> Allen's Apple Farm. Sure, like that, those apples. My my wife has an uncle named Allen. <laughs> I like I like I like picking apples. Okay. We used to, I used to go picking apples in Baltimore a lot. That's cute. Yep. Um, Boggers Boggers Farm. Out like 45 minutes outside of Baltimore. <laughs> so that's how I came up with Ab- Alan's Apple Farm. Okay. You're making me talk more, and I have like a massive, <laughs> like, cold. <laughs> and you're doing that on purpose, I think. <laughs> okay. So, say Alan's Apple Farm started with 20 local pack listings before the update in the, in the local pack. Okay. And over the course of this 45 day period, it lost a whole bunch of listings at one point. Let's say, I don't know, let's say um, um, on, on November 15th, right? It lost a whole bunch of listings. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's possible that there was a reversal, that it suddenly gained those listings back, let's say on December 1st or November 30th, whatever it is, okay? Mm. 
Now, that would still show up as a ton of volatility, right? It went from 20 to 10, back to 20. Right. But the net gain or loss would be zero. Zero. Mm, I see what you mean. Okay? So yeah. there's a piece of the puzzle that we still haven't looked at. Right. So I looked at that because that's what I do. That's good. That's what I do. <laughs> okay, so easy enough. Okay, all I did was I tallied up the total number of listing changes from the start of each period to the end of each period. Okay? A listing change could be either a gain. You either gained a local pack listing or you lost a local pack listing. Okay, so here it is. Okay? Oh, let, me, let, me, let me spell that out a little bit so you understand what I did. Okay. okay. Um, so let's say at the start of the update, another business, Bob's Beaver Farm. I don't know where the hell they came up with that one. <laughs> Bob's Beaver Farm had 20 listings, and after the update, Bob's Beaver Farm had five listings. What the hell is a beaver farm? Anyway, not important. Okay, that's 15, right? It went from 20 to five listings. Okay, that's 15 what I'm calling listing changes, since a listing change could be either a gain or a loss. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I just added all those up for the business I studied, for the update, and all them up for the baseline period. Right. Okay. The update period for these 10 businesses consisted of 44 listing changes. That's a lot of changes. In other words, it wasn't like there was a reversal. They started with they all started with 20, they all lost, you know, 10, they all went back up to 20. Mm-hmm. Okay. Net gain or loss, there was 44 of these changes that happened. I mean, there's actual there's actual change to these local packs listings for each business a business either gained or lost and then let's calculate whether they gained or lost on average gained or lost a decent number of local pack listings mm. okay and if you average it out according to the number of businesses i looked at it's four four listings either gained or lost four and a half listings either gained or lost as a result of the update now the baseline did the same thing and that was 35 local um, pack changes meaning each business saw a change, either a gain or a loss, of an average of 3.5 changes, net gain or net loss, during the baseline period, four and a half during the update period. Okay, so there wasn't like, okay, you lost your, your listings, but you got them back. It was a reversal. Everything's okay. There was a real change. Mm-hmm. Okay, but again, small data set, liberty limited, but there is a trend here, and the trend is consistent with what happened during that period because there was an update. Do what you want. Do what you want with it. Are you done? Pretty much. That's all I have to say. What a wonderful mini mini study you did there, Morty. Thank you for sharing. Very insightful as usual. Not sarcastic as usual. <laughs> You're quite welcome. I enjoyed <laughs> delivering that to you. That was a lot of fun. That's good. Full study forthcoming if I have time. Who knows? Oh, okay. I, I look forward to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gotta look at a lot more. But I'm gonna. I probably still do the same forty like forty five day period and right, look right, at right. Multiple instances throughout, but I probably try to do a couple hundred. Oh, that would be super interesting. Right, but the trends are still the trends as I see them. I think they're relatively accurate in terms of a trend. Again, do what you want with it. Okay. This is not the gospel. Let's move on. Okay. Yes, let's move on. Yeah. From finding local pack opportunities to finding content opportunities oh, wow. of all sorts. I tied it in really mm-hmm. nicely. As we welcome the great David Bain. Cut one. Welcome to another In Search SEO podcast interview session. He's a marketing MC extraordinaire, a familiar voice to many in the SEO community, and the author of the upcoming Marketing Now book, he is the great David Bain. Welcome. Hey, Marty. Uh, great to be on with you. Thanks for inviting me. Sure, absolutely. Um, first off, I have to apologize, anybody listening. While we're recording this, I have a horrific 
cold. So if I sound terrible, it's because I feel terrible. But um, <laughs> that aside, you got to tell me about they have a, you have a new book called, called Marketing Now coming out. Please tell me all about it. Yeah, thank you. It's a crazy thing. It really is. <laughs> uh, it uh, it interviews 134 of some of the world's leading marketers. Um, certainly, digital SEO type people are um, can skewed towards um, in terms of marketers there. And it wasn't really produced conventionally. I interviewed them in the form of a live stream. So I hosted this live stream about eight hours long or so. Funnily enough, if you have an eight-hour-long live stream, then you can get about 60,000 words out of it. <laughs> How, however, it's not just a transcript of that. I found that once you got the, the text produced, once you saw the transcript, people don't really speak in the same way that they write. So I ended up having to rewrite everything everyone said. Wow. So I'm sure that um, I made my, my life very hard for myself, and it was actually a lot harder to produce the book that way than it was just to write 60,000 words. Yeah, but that's a way better experience because we actually don't write how we talk. Hence, yeah. voice search is totally different than yeah. traditional search. Exactly. Um, just want to throw some names out there from the SEO industry who's within the, the pages of this new book. Yeah, sure. So, um, kind of SEO names, Elita Solace, uh, Lucas Zelesny, um, other kind of big marketing names like Larry Kim, Marcus Sheridan was part of it as well. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, um, give people big shout outs though, because to be honest with you, the quality of the information shared by everyone was superb. And, you know, I, I wouldn't like people to judge it just by the, the quality of the names that uh, are part of it. Absolutely, fair enough. Uh, so we'll definitely link to the um, to the book in the in the blog post that harbors this podcast. And let's get started with content opportunities. Um, there's a, a lot going on. I mean, within digital marketing overall, within social media, within within search. Uh, but before we get into all of that, I just want to sort of define what we mean when we talk about there's content opportunities out there for anyone who may not be familiar with the term. Yeah, absolutely. There there certainly is. And for me, a content opportunity is an organic touch point that has a small possibility of resulting in a sale at some point in the future. And that can be any type of content out there. It could be a massive, uh, incredible um, 10,000 word blog post. It could be a video out there. It could be answering someone's question out there as well. But if you think about where your target audience is likely to be in terms of mindset before the completed transaction on your website, um, then hopefully you can get a feel for the kind of things that they're interested in and meet them at that point. So it's not necessarily talking specifically about your own products and services. It's potentially talking about the things that are likely to appeal to your target market. I mean, so you have to think way broader than actually targeting a particular user at a particular moment. Yeah, I mean, paid search nowadays is all about audiences. And I think SEO to a certain degree is moving towards that as well, to really have a good understanding of who your audience is and what kind of things they're likely to like and in enjoy interacting with, uh, as well as the, the things that are directly in relation to your own products and services. What's interesting about that is that you mentioned what users or what your audience may enjoy interacting with versus what they, they expect to, um, to find on, let's say, on, on the results page. In other words, they may enjoy finding X, Y, and Z, but they also may expect it to be in a format that's not conducive to, to, your, um, to your own purposes. I'm really referring to the zero-click search where mm. 
you can write some really great content around whatever it is, sports scores, weather, but users now seem to be expecting it to come on the SERP and not on an actual page. And coming from an SEO perspective, I guess it's a great place to start. Hmm. What exactly do you do? How exactly do you find opportunity in an era where there just seems to be less opportunity from an SEO perspective? I think from a traditional SEO perspective, absolutely, yes. I mean, I started SEO back in about 2004 or so, and back then I was ranking highly competitive keyword phrases number one on Google and you know driving a lot of traffic from that. And that, that wasn't a problem really t- to do that just by sharing links and uh, submitting articles to article sites and having backlinks. Now, the SEO world has changed enormously since then. And, you know, things like schema markup and having answers directly, as you say, on the, on the, on the SERP Mordi means that uh, the consumer is not behaving in the same way that they used to. But it doesn't necessarily mean that um, from a brand perspective or from a way to attract those consumers to do business with you at some point in the future, the opportunity is gone. Uh, it's definitely harder, but it's, it's, it's a challenge. So, the challenge is, um, how do you, as a brand, become first of mind in your consumer when they are ready to actually make a purchase at some point in the future? Because w- from an SEO perspective, we know that the there's not a standard click-through rate in the SERP when people do actually click through. It used to be we assumed things like, okay, position number one gets 20% or whatever it was, and um, position number 10 goes down to 2% click-through rate. It was, it was a fairly standard model back then. But nowadays, uh, we know that it depends on the type of search that the consumer is doing. And if they're searching for a product, and if they recognize the brand uh, in that search, they're much more likely to click on it. So if an Amazon listing was on there, or if another big brand that they recognize was in there, they're much more likely to click through. So I think your business nowadays as a content marketer, for someone that engages with your content, but not necessarily clicks through, is one of brand recognition and making the consumer more likely to search for your brand or perhaps to click through uh, on a piece of content uh, when the time is right for you as a, uh, for, for them as a consumer. That's interesting because one of the things that comes out of that is that you sort of create a certain identity or brand awareness with the, with the user. And I think that also speaks to search engines, especially in the, in the, in the age where yeah. um, Google is speaking to understanding things as, as an entity, understanding your site's identity, understanding um, who you are as a site, or your brand's identity, and so forth and so forth. Yeah. Um, from a content perspective, right? So you have, we all know what it means to build a brand identity from a user's perspective, but from a search perspective or search engine perspective, sort of creating that core identity. How do you use content to do that? It's, you know, tougher like it was, um, you know, tougher, like it is tougher with SEO. I'm a big fan of speaking directly to your users, though, or speaking directly to your target marketplace. And I love using services like usertesting.com. And they'll let you see recordings of your target audience interacting with your website and seeing what they do, whether or not they're likely to understand specifically what your business is about and click through and, and view various different pieces of content. So speaking directly to your consumers or seeing recorded videos of your target market interacting with your website is a good place to start. And that will direct you in terms of whether or not your content on your website is user-friendly. But in terms of the content writing approach, I'm also a big fan of Simon Sinek's why, how, what structure. And I think that a lot of SEOs 
tend to be quite methodical in nature, are quite fact-driven. And if SEOs are led to or are left to write copy on a website, then uh, I, I would bet that they're probably more likely to start off with the things uh, about a product, so the, the what about a product. And in general, consumers are quite emotionally driven to begin with. So it's important to start off with the why. I, I'm also a big fan of analyzing landing pages. I think that's a great uh, starting point. If you look at competitive marketplaces where it may be as much as $50 per click or more, um, looking at paid search for, uh, for from the SERP, then if businesses out there continue to advertise, then their landing pages are exceptional because they're managing to make a profit uh, while still paying huge amounts of money for those visitors. Uh, and if you have a look at those landing pages, a lot of them start with the emotional why. Um, they've got a very specific testimonial at the top there. Uh, they, go, they then go into the how their product works, and then further down the page they talk about the what about their product. A lot of landing pages are very similar to that. And even videos, um, if you have a look at uh, a lot of Wix's videos on YouTube, they use a similar kind of emotional start to it. They've got a very nice thread uh, through it. Um, accounting software that I was looking at um, on, on Google, uh, I think it was Sage, um, you know, started off with a very uh, emotional reason to begin with. So that why, how, what process um, weaved through your content on landing pages is, is, is what I recommend. How, how how strict do you think you have to be as a brand sticking to if you're talking if you're selling a product or a particular series of products or if you're writing content let's, say, you know, let's stick with the content side for now if you're writing content either around products or around a service or just your informational site how to what extent do you think you have to stick to um, one core topic or one core area and not sort of branch out to other areas in order to build brand identity, in order to build um, entity awareness on the part of the search engine? Again, it's tough, but uh, and it depends on the size of business that you're talking about there. I think that if you're an individual uh, providing contracting services or consultancy services, you are your own persona. So the content that you produce um, you've got to produce content that's most likely to resonate with you and you're going to end up um, building a target market uh, fairly easily like that or more easily than if you invented uh, a persona, uh, in my opinion. However, if you're a bigger business, uh, th then it's tougher. You have to be a lot more defined in terms of the content that you're producing and the purpose behind it. Now, I looked at various content marketing models when I was designing a, a digital marketing training program last year or so, because I, I believe that content marketing is at, at the center of digital success. Even if you're talking about paid marketing, you know, it has to be a great landing page. It has to be great copy on, on your ad that you're talking about there as well. So if content marketing is at the center of it, is there a content marketing model that can be used to direct you in terms of what kind of content you should be, you should be writing? The, the content marketing model that I quite liked was Google's slash YouTube's um, Hero Hub help model. Um, and that was kind of three spokes looking at um, hero, first of all. So hero content, incredible uh, quality content that people resonate with, people are likely to share and um, uh, really absolutely love. So the kind of content that you put a lot of time and effort into it. Uh, hub content is more episodic type content. So more blog articles, podcasts, um, a series of content perhaps on YouTube as well. Um, and then 
for that kind of series type content, uh, you're more likely to be broader in, in picture. Uh, I heard a story once of uh, a lawyers in America starting a golf podcast talking about golf. And so nothing to do with law, but brought to you by this law firm. But if you think about it, really clever because their target market is only like to use use their service once or twice. They're not interested in law at all. All, all, all they're interested in is a law brand being there that they can trust when they need that. And they, they, they did a lot of research into the target market and they found that the target market was quite likely to, to like golf. Um, so the golf pod podcast was brought by the law firm and then they were top of mind at the point of transaction. And then the help content which was more about um, the, the kind of traditional SEO. You're looking for the common queries that people uh, answer on your website or, uh, or, or, or you answer the, the right questions on your, on your website. In fact, there's a great book about that called um, The Ask You Answer by Marcus Sheridan. And um, it really goes into uh, a, a lot of depth about how to write that type of content. So those are the three types of content in Google's model. I was a little bit uncomfortable because I didn't think that um, they talked about commercial content, the, the kind of content that was great on a landing page. Um, so I, as part of my training program that I developed, brought in a fourth H and I called it heart content, the heart of what a business does. And that's product pages. Right. Um, and that's using Simon Sinek's model on those pages to talk about the why first, moving to the how and, and the what. Um, so I, I think that's an interesting model for businesses to use um, to, to, when they're probably planning for the long term and they're fairly big businesses and they want to do things like thinking about their target persona and planning out what type of content to use where. It's funny that you talk about, say, um, the landing page in particular um, and in particular with hero content because I feel like in the SEO industry we sort of get sidetracked from – from thinking about landing page from a conversion perspective sometimes where you think about, okay, it's traffic. I need to have longer content, longer series, that sort of series content that you spoke about. But that top level, that really engaging hero content um, that we, we somehow, you know, we think about H1s, we think about headers or whatever, but we don't really think about when you hit on a landing page, you really only have a very, very short amount of time before the, the, before the user says, why am I here? What's this about? Why should I buy this? And that sort of amazing content that really captivating content that you see at the top of a good landing page is something that I think we don't focus on as much. What do you think works, by the way, when you're designing something like, you know, a great piece and a great engagement as soon as you hit that landing page? What goes into that? What works for you? What have you seen as has worked? I think generally the best place to start, as long as if you're an established business, is what your best customers are saying about your brand. And if you can weave a story from your customers into that, not directly talking about your products and services, but how it made them feel, the, the, the kind of solutions um, the, the, or the problems that your product or service solved in, in, in their, uh, their minds, uh, you know, in their lives. Uh, and if, if you can really strike a place emotionally about um, the why in there, I, I just think that um, it, it is perhaps a little bit counterintuitive to technical-minded people um, because they want they want to be quite fact-driven. But um, it's it, it's been proven to work. And if if you're not sure, then I, I guess the simple step is to split test it and you know have your existing page against you know some. Uh, more emotionally driven content at the top of the page. 
you're you're very much into storytelling then. I, I, I I'm not naturally. I don't think so. I'm, I'm. I think I'm naturally a little bit more fact driven, but I'm driven by results, and I've seen with my own eyes brands that are most successful, which and those tend to be brands that um, you know, are driven by emotions to begin with. So I think you just have to follow what tends to lead to success. That kind of makes sense. <laughs> when it comes down to it, that's really all it is, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, it's it, it's challenging because you're not necessarily doing what comes natural to you. And I, I think when you hopefully mature a bit as a marketer, then you accept that you don't know everything and you shouldn't prejudge everything. And you should bring in different opinions and you should interview people and try not see things from a very experienced perspective. The, the obvious example is a web page. You, you work in a business for five years and you look at the same web page every day. You're, you're going to think that it's very easy and logical to, uh, to, to follow through that site and to make a transaction. But someone visiting it for the first time probably wants, won't, won't see it from the same perspective. Yeah, and what's funny about all this is that if you, you know, everyone has their own um, skill sets that they work with that they have, um, you know, underneath their belt, and certain areas are much less comfortable for them. And I think one of the things we get maybe stuck with, I wonder what your, your thoughts about, are about this, is in, in, in SEO and in digital marketing and, and, and so forth, we sort of fall, you have to create 10x content, it has to be supreme. If you want to stand out, it has to be the best content ever. At the same time, that could sort of be limiting. Like, for example, if I'm not a great storyteller, I'll say, well, I can't really tell a great story. I'm not going to do it. It's not going to be 10x. In my mind, sometimes good is okay enough. Oh, yeah. It, and, and good is the only way to become great as well. You're never yeah. going to become great when you publish your first article or podcast or video. You know, when I was talking to Evan Carmichael, um, he publishes three videos every single day on YouTube. And he publishes great videos now. But he said the first 100, 200 videos that he did <laughs> sucked in, in, in his work. And he, right. he, he wouldn't have got there unless he just continued with the volume. You, you've got to try to make sure it's a reasonable standard, obviously, but you're never going to get to great unless you get to good first. No, absolutely. And, and it's definitely a learning process. And you, you never really know what you're good at until you actually get into it. So you might surprise yourself a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And your style of content that you produce is going to change as well. The, the more you produce, yes. the more you're going to find your voice. Uh, the more you're going to be comfortable in your, in, your, in your voice as well. I mean, from a personal perspective, right, thinking back four or five years ago when I was writing an SEO blog versus now, it's not the same person who's writing. I, I would, I'm, it's almost embarrassing to me to read those old posts. I'm sure they're okay, but... Exactly, yeah. yeah. I, I don't want to go back and watch no, the, the videos we, that were recorded <laughs> on YouTube in 2007. Well, don't search for them, anybody, if you're looking. Let them be. Um, you know, since we're talking about video, I want to jump into the different formats of, of content out there because we speak so much about um, written content. But since we're doing a podcast, let's talk about audio um, for a moment because, hey, Google threw podcasts onto the SERP, so we might as well. Podcasts have sort of boomed, and it's almost surprising because you would think in the age of video – an audio-only experience wouldn't be as popular as it is, but it seems to have really caught on. I'm wondering why you think they have, and I'm wondering where you think there's room to sort of separate yourself out now that the podcast market is filling up a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of things came together at the right time. Obviously, there was the rise of smartphones, and you had the ability for consumers to be able to subscribe directly on their phones. I remember in the past, you used to have to use iTunes 
on your PC, and then you have to uh, sync that with your your iPod if you had one as well. And it really was a bit of a, a technical palaver to uh, be able to listen to a podcast. But then you were able to listen directly on the phone. So then the average consumer was able to do that as well. There's also from a pr content production perspective, the, the ease of being able to produce that content, that's improved over the years. Um, microphones have become better or people have had more access to better microphones more easily and it's become easier to produce the content as well. I, I produced my first podcast back in 2006 with you know, a basic headset and not really knowing what I was doing and uh, using some very basic audio editing and just fig figuring out how to actually produce an empty really hard to actually do that at the time but but nowadays there are so many services that are available that you can quickly and easily produce the content so yeah the the ease of consumption the ease of production as well um, but also I think nowadays it's much more normal to put your personal brand forward go back 10 years ago it was very um, everything that happened online was very business brand driven so not personal brand driven at all people hid behind a business brand live streaming didn't happen and people were very cautious about putting their own name forward you know with the advent of uh, live streaming you know periscope to begin with facebook live streaming it's very normal to put your personal brand forward and for consumers to look for that as a, as a way of trusting a business and i think uh, producing podcast uh, podcast content is another way to augment that personal brand that you're building. Yeah, and, and that's interesting because you've gone from going from brand focus to people focus, and I'm I'm sort of in the, in the point where I'm thinking that yeah, we are people focused, but now we're getting micro people focused. What I mean by that is that while we used to hover over all these you know large influencers, I'm finding that I have more success in a lot of ways with micro influencers. Definitely. People who have a nice community, a nice support network around them, and it's really interesting to move away how that's evolving from the big influencer to the sort of micro person, or not I mean a micro per, micro influencer, <laughs> a very small person. Right. Yes. <laughs> Apologies. Um, I also, I want to harp on something that you mentioned a second ago about live streaming, actually, because to speak about my own comfort zone, I am not a live person. I like to have the safety of, hey, let's re-record that or let's edit that out. Do when you're doing a podcast and you are a podcast guru, um, do you is it really added value when going live versus the safety of well, just do it recorded? Look, I, I do it largely just because I enjoy it and I have fun doing it. It also happens to be a way to produce video content at the same time, but you have to be very conscious that it doesn't reduce the quality of the content that you're trying to produce because for me the vast majority of content consumers that I've got are in the audio form. So people will subscribe to the podcast. So if I'm laughing and joking with my live audience and saying or doing things that only work in a visual form, then that's got to be negative for my podcast audience. You've got to be a little bit careful about that. The other thing I'd say is don't try and do everything at once um, all, all together straight away. So you don't want to be recording a podcast and doing live streaming and interacting with your live chat and bringing in intros and bumpers and other guests into the same call at the same time straight away. That's just a recipe for, for trouble. But you can do it by a step-by-step -step approach. You can start with 
audio to begin with, everything pre-recorded, that you can then make your podcast a little bit easier to edit by adding things like your, your bumpers, your intros uh, as part of the live recording, that you can then move towards doing a pre-recorded video in the comfort uh, that you can do some editing afterwards. Uh, so I guess that's where you are, uh, Marty, at the moment. You're, you know, you're very comfortable, you know, doing pre-recorded video. You, know, <laughs> you, you can, you, you can take the video, you can use it if you want, but you know, you can uh, obviously have the luxury of being able to edit it afterwards or um, being able to re-record if if you really want to. But but then I, I, f- I fess up to that. I agree. That's <laughs> my, That's me. But 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 then you you can move on to to live streaming from there because then you get you get enough. Uh, practicing to, to, to doing videos so you, you start to be able to do things like look directly into the camera and at least do your intros and your outros directly to the camera and you get a bit more comfortable with doing video in general um, and then uh, after that you start engaging with the live audience so you start being able to bring in um, questions and um, and engage with people as, as, as part of your live audience and um, it, it, it's an all new challenge but it, it's, it's a great bit of fun as well and I find with live streaming I, I can bring in a decent number of people to, to watch live I'll maybe go, go live on LinkedIn and bring in about 50 people without having any kind of marketing about the event going on but then within 24 hours I'll have about 2,000 people have watched the video. So if I only did the audio podcast, then I wouldn't have had exposure to to all that audience as well. How do you do that, by the way? How do you bring in that live audience? Because I'm just speaking for myself here for a second. I see a lot more going on with live streaming, particularly on Facebook. You know, watch parties, whatever. I completely ignore all of them. Yeah. And, Look, and I, how do you do that? Facebook isn't, in my opinion, as enjoyable or as engaging as it used to be i think a lot to do with the lack of organic reach i think they've they've, they've dimmed it you know, dulled it down just too much now it's just not 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 fair yeah, I, th- I think I agree. Th- there should be a reasonable amount of organic reach if your content is good and i think because of that it puts uh, a few content producers off you can go live on Facebook and not have too much of people even being aware of the fact that you're live now unless you promote it, but you can't actually promote it until right. after you've been live. So it's a bit ridiculous. But um, with, with LinkedIn, I've, I've been fortunate to have access to their, their kind of beta program that I, I don't believe is available for new people to join at the moment. It's, it's still in test just now. But be, because it's a fairly new thing, people that you're connected with will get alerted uh, when you go live, as long as they're on LinkedIn. And because of that, I found a lot of engagement and a lot of people being willing to interact. The, the only thing is, if you're a podcaster, you're probably quite used to sticking to the content that you intend to discuss and right. not bringing in new, new questions. So what I'd suggest as a podcaster is for the f- first five minutes or so, just go live, You know, say hi, say this is what you were going to talk about uh, today. Greet people as they actually come in and say hi, um, hi their name, ask people where they're from in the world and um, say to people, this is what we're going to be talking about. Do you have any questions on this particular topic? And just focus on the live audience for the first five minutes. Um, That will bring a little bit more interaction in. Then you go into your main discussion and then try and take note of the questions um, while uh, perhaps if you're uh, if you've got a guest on your podcast is, is is saying something, and then you can bring in the questions and refer to the person's name as part of the the live discussion. And then at the end of the podcast recording, don't go straight off air. Just thank everyone for being a part of it. I, I'm I'm not perfect at it. I'll I'll still focus a lot on 
the content in the podcast. Uh, I, it's it's very difficult to incorporate everyone's thoughts, and uh, it's 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 a whole learning experience. But it's it's just fun. And at the end of the day, what's the worst that can happen? It's it's not really that important. So right. just give it a go. I would say. So if you get stumped, it's okay. Absolutely. I mean, I've. Oh right. The, the more you the more you do, the more likely you're 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 likely to have, you know, some major issue that's happened to you. I've yes. gone live and had major issues with my video not working. I've gone live hosting what was allegedly going to be a, a four guest webinar and one guest showed up and then that guest had internet connections. So I was live talking to myself for 20 minutes before the guest <laughs> came back. So it doesn't really that's matter. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't really, it's true. Listen, everyone knows like mistakes happen, things happen. No one's going to, no one's going to kill you over it. Yeah. One moment does it ruin the world? Exactly, exactly. I mean, everyone's—I I say everyone's a grain of sand in the universe. So, you know, if if you're really worried about things, then your perspective's probably not right. You know, in the whole scheme of things, it's just not important at all. No, and you really have to trust your audience that they recognize you have quality content that you offer in general is good, solid stuff. And okay, there's a a momentary lapse of whatever. Yeah, and, and and trust yourself because yes. if some people don't like what you do, you know, well, that that's fine. Some will, some won't. No, no, you're never gonna find it. You will never find everyone likes your content. There's always gonna be that one person who says, ah, yeah, "I didn't really like that. That was too intense or too whatever." <laughs> um, <laughs> I want to I want to jump. Say we're we're nearing the end of our time, and I I want to harp on your book for a second. Not just to plug it, because of course we're gonna plug it, but um, I, I I like the fact that we're bringing in the written word from a from a actual text perspective. Like there are actually books that still exist on marketing, on digital marketing, which is amazingly funny to me because we sort of get lost in this bubble. Digital marketing, everything is digital print, blog posts, you know, news articles, whatever it is, Google content. But there's actually a world of books out there, and I'm wondering how you see the the two sort of. Um, interweaving together in this one world of overall content, the relationship between digital content and print copy, how they sort of help each other or balance each other off. Yeah, I think it's important now when the world of SEO and online content marketing is perhaps getting more competitive to look for other out-of-the-box opportunities. Yeah, you know, Marty, when was the last time you read a book? What was the last physical book that you I read? Just, I just finished reading um, The Extraordinary Life of Sam Hell. There we go. So you're you're still reading physical books, but yes, you know, they do fun, they do exist. But funnily enough, in your head, you're probably not actually linking that together with online no, content. Not at all. Total yeah. schism. Yeah, and and I think that it's definitely there's definitely an opportunity there to to drive people from your offline content to your online content, and vi and vice versa there uh, there as well. At the end of each section of my book i've got three main sections at the end of each section i go right go to marketingnowbook.com and watch the workshop video now and um so as part of the live stream launch that i'm going to be doing in a couple of weeks time i'm going to be getting panels on and having people um submit their websites for review and have the panel um, give them specific actionable um, advice uh, in relation to the content that's shared in the book. Um, so those workshop recordings will be an addition to the book as well. So the end of each section of the book, um, it's a great point for people to go in and watch the video that's relevant to that particular section. And hopefully that'll help readers 
implement what they've, they've learned in the book as well. But of course, it's a way of driving people to my website, getting people to opt in as well and experience other online content that I've got as well. And I think that that kind of content um, integration is probably relatively in its infancy compared with um, other forms of digital marketing. And there's probably a lot of opportunity there. That's true. And what's interesting is that there is a natural flow from print copy to digital. For example, the book I was reading, as soon as I finished it, I wanted to see what – are they making a movie about it? Or what, what are there some other reviews out there? What do people – what do other people think about this book? And I went to YouTube and I typed in the title and I, I learned a little bit more about the book. And it was a natural flow from the print copy right to the digital world. And there is a sort of integration that happens that maybe we should be taking more advantage of. I agree with you. Exactly. And it's and you're thinking like that. And it's, it's not something that you've been forced to do. It's something that you want to do because the quality yes. of the content that's been shared in the book. And as digital marketers, we need to be producing incredible experiences that make it natural for people to want to find out more about you. And we shouldn't be thinking about digital marketing in terms of trying to force people down into the next step of the funnel. Right. I like that. That's not what marketing is really all about, <laughs> As, despite what you may have heard. Um, before we wrap up with a little fun little gimmick that I have, um, I have to ask you, so you've gone from, from podcasting and digital marketing to actually writing a book. What have you learned along the way? Because it's actually an incredible journey. Yeah, I mean, yeah. As I mentioned earlier, I mean, I think it's important not to just start off with a book or her producing an incredibly long live stream and start off with that podcasting to begin with. Um, but um, in summary, I would say. In terms of traffic, SEO is harder than it used to be, and you need to be thinking a little bit um, out of the box and be doing different yeah. things. Obviously, you can. You need to make sure your website is an incredible user experience. It's it's it looks up to date and um, really relevant present day, brilliant mobile experience. Just the standard kind of things that I'm sure that many of your guests share. Um, but also, I would add that from a content marketing perspective, your competition isn't who you think they are. Your competition isn't businesses out there that are doing exactly the same things as you're doing. Your competition is is, is other websites or publishing houses out there that are, that are publishing content that are appeal, that's appealing to your target audience and taking the time away um, to you know, another piece of content from your piece of content. So your competition could be the BBC or it could be Netflix, your massive media houses. So from that learning perhaps think about the quality of content that you produce and ask yourself the question well you know, is my content quality good enough to engage consumers and compete with that level of publishing experience that's a brilliant point actually um i have this me on youtube all the time I'll, I'll i'll be scrolling through particularly on mobile i'll be scrolling through i'll say okay you know i see that one i'll click on it i minimize it while i scroll for something else and then I click on something. That's even more interesting than the thing I just found. And it could be I'm watching a new uh, movie trailer, and then I'll, you know, phase out of that really quickly in favor of a sports video. There two. It's not like it's like okay, it's, it's one trailer over another movie trailer, or one sports clip over another sports clip. It's two totally different sets of content that are both competing for my attention at the same time. And I would imagine that the sports clip is not thinking, "Wow, that movie trailer is going to be my competition on YouTube." Exactly. In reality, it is. You, you brought in something else that's interesting there as well. Uh, I think that when you're publishing video on YouTube, the most important thing from a consumer engagement perspective is the quality of your audio. 
because unless you're producing good audio, you mentioned there that you tend to minimize the video. You're probably not even looking at the video. You're right, deciding right. whether or not to continue with it, just just listening to the audio. And a lot of people do that with YouTube. They they have the video going on the background. They're walking around the house maybe, and then they'll continue to listen to it just based upon the quality of the audio. So unless you start with the podcast to begin with and you're comfortable with producing decent quality audio, then if you just do video straight away, you're probably not going to be aware of what it takes to produce good audio. I, I'm in the prime case of this. I I listen to YouTube more than I watch YouTube. I'll have I'll have a, a video going on, a news video, whatever it is, in the background while I work. I'm not watching it, but I'm listening. It's for just the background noise, or maybe I'm actually paying attention a few moments. But I definitely use YouTube as an audio first tool, which is interesting and counterintuitive. Exactly. That, that's YouTube, but uh, of course, Facebook and LinkedIn are visually led. So you, yes. you, you have to have subtitles because people tend to watch them on mute to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I very, very rarely do I um, unmute a YouTube video. A <laughs> Facebook or LinkedIn, you mean? Or I'm sorry, I, I apologize. Um, Facebook, yes. Yeah. Although YouTube has that also now, where they'll start to run the video on with the transcription on mobile. Well, the thing is, um, that's actually baked into Chrome. Um, it, it used to be when you embedded uh, a video on your website, you could automatically play it, and um, you could have the audio playing. But now, within Chrome, it, it doesn't actually allow the video to to, to play straight away. Uh, they don't like it like it from right. a usability perspective. Amazing. Okay, so b before we we part ways. Um, I have this little fun thing that I do. I call it optimize it or disavow it. If you listen to the show regularly, then you know what it is. If not, it goes like this. I'll either offer you two really good options and you're stuck choosing two really good options or two meh options and you're stuck choosing two, well, two really crappy options. Um, so this is the David Bain version of optimize it or disavow it. simple question today. It's zero sum. It's a zero sum world. You can do one and not the other one. And since we're talking about content formats, and particularly it's so appropriate how we ended off with this, um, talking about audio versus video, if you could do one and not the other one, would you create audio content or video content? I would have to create audio content. And Spoken like a true podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy producing video, but video for me is a marketing channel, uh, but... A podcast is my hub content. It's it's really where people come back to on a regular basis, and um, it's 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 the important thing for continuing to to build that engagement over time. I've struggled with YouTube recently, actually. I remember five seven years ago or so, I could publish a video, and I published a couple of videos that have had over a hundred thousand views on YouTube. But recently, when I published it, I've I've found that I haven't got nearly as much organic engagement. I think that's because YouTube now want you to be an ongoing publisher. And unless you're publishing videos every single week on YouTube, then you're 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 less likely to get that or, or organic reach. But uh, with publishing a, a, a podcast, it's slightly easier to continue to get it. Yeah, I, I published a, you know, a, a podcast that's that's fairly easily got up to 20,000 downloads a month. And I didn't do that with any external marketing and you're not going to be able to do that publishing a blog nowadays easily certainly without yes. a lot a lot of work so i think in terms of the opportunity to get that organic reach and the volume of organic reach i would lean to audio 
Yeah, I, I, I personally agree with you. I mean, obviously, written content blog posts are very difficult to get going sometimes. It's, it really all depends on what you're writing and what, if it's exactly relevant in exactly the right moment. On video content, I, I agree with you. The same sort of thing. It's hard to get people to come back and say, hey, you know what? It's, it's Tuesday again. Time to come back for the next episode, Words of the Podcast. First of all, I, get a lot of, I, I notice I get a lot of people on their way to work in the car, which you're not going to get with video, which is an interesting niche to, to sort of get or on the train or, or whatever you take. Um, but yeah, people come back. People, people tend to realize, hey, it's a weekly show. It, it's, it's, ironically, I never thought it would be, but I, find, I found that this podcast has been one of the most successful and one of the most... Um, and one of the most easy things to do in order to get recognition or to, and, and in order to get people to realize, hey, we're producing great content that I can really learn from on a consistent basis. Exactly. Your audience can passively consume your audio content. They're, they're, they're much yes. more likely to cons- consume more to, because of it. It's challenging from an SEO perspective or from uh, maybe a conversion rate perspective to really measure the, the true financial value yes, of yes. producing a content and, that, and that, that's tough but you, but you have to do things by instinct or by what people or some people are seeing you as, as a result of the content you're producing to quote marlon brando from apocalypse now the horror doing things intuitively please that sounds, that sounds <laughs> scary no but yeah of course you have to do things intuitively I say that, of course, because people don't think that. Well, if you have the data and how much they, there's no way you're going to understand the, the buzz or the, the the recognition or the 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 connections that you're actually making with people while you do something like a podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, David, for coming on. That was great, and uh, good luck with the book. Thank you very much. Great to be on you with you. And we are back to your regularly scheduled In Search SEO podcast, Marketing Now by David Bain. It's out now. It's marketing now, and it's out now. Uh, look it up. Look it over. And hey, maybe buy a copy. Maybe. Maybe. Okay. All right, Sabir. No. It is time for you to do that voodoo that you do so <laughs> well. You know, you know where that's from, do you? I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not telling you where it's from. Oh, what? Now, you do that voodoo that you do so well. Please sup here, despite the fact that you don't know that pop culture reference. Are you hinting that I'm like a witch or something? No, I'm hinting that you don't know 70s movies from Mel Brooks. Please hit it with... Who is Mel Brooks? Okay, yeah. The news. <laughs> Wait, wait, stop. Wow. Did you say he, who's Mel Brooks? Yeah. Holy crap. Okay, now I gotta keep going. <laughs> I just lost my collective. <gasps> 70s, you that, come you, on. Did you hear that sound? Went, pfft, splat. That was the brain inside of my skull. Okay. Going, who's Mel Brooks? Oh, you, had, you had a brain? I yes. Did, I didn't know. Wow, Small. Okay. But it's there. So now it it's splat. non-existent. Now it's gone. Okay. Now hit it with the news. Please, sorry. So, as we said, Google confirmed its November 2019 local update. I think we've said enough here already. Evidently not, because you're not happy with the number of listings I use in my study. <laughs> so, evidently, we have not said enough. <laughs> okay. All right, moving on, moving on. Google founders Larry Page and Sergey Brin have stepped down from being the CEO and president of Google's parent company, Alphabet. Current Google CEO... Sundar Pichai will be taking over. That's a lot of power consolidated into one person. It just makes me think. Darth Vader. I'm not saying anything. Uh-huh. I'm, just, I'm just humming a song. Okay. Oh, I knew that reference. Very good. So proud of wow, myself. Wow, that's really good. Like, it's like, that's like knowing this guy is See, blue. Andrew, I know. Right? Oh, so. <laughs> calling out Andrew Optimizing. Calling out. Mm-hmm. Okay. She knows. She does nothing. 
I know. about this stuff. But yeah, keep going. Okay. Google reiterated that they used the rel canonical to determine original news content, meaning get your syndicates to point towards your site. However, SEO expert Glenn Gabe noted that Google seems to ignore the attribute at times. Yes, that's a, that's a hot mess right there. That's just a hot mess. This needs, this needs to be... As we spoke about it on the podcast previously, this needs to be solved. Mm-hmm. Okay. Finally, Google has updated their quality raters guidelines. The new changes include a new section that explains that different users have different needs when searching, which means they need different types of search results. Also, a call on raters to evaluate based on their local perspective. Google also outlines the definition of a search engine and a user as well. Yeah, which okay. So not an extensive number of changes to this version of the guidelines, but really interesting that, that new section they added. So it, it goes to okay, different search or different needs, blah, 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 blah. And one of the things Google mentioned, and they mentioned this before, um, is that so you, medical content should be highly authoritative versus I think the example they use, like, you know, a, a picture of a cute, adorable puppet should be cute and adorable, which means, okay, so that sounds okay. That makes sense. But to me, that's a very, very strong signal that Google is profiling content according to vertical. Google is profiling your site according to what vertical you, you reside in and how you are approaching the content that you are dealing with, which I've spoken about numerous times in blog posts about the, the uh, core updates. But again, the reason why they're saying, okay, YMYL health sites should be you know, authoritative and cute, adorable puppies should be cute and adorable points to Google having a very clear understanding of what profile of content you are what should therefore be with your content in terms of the content itself and its tone and what and whatnot versus another and completely different vertical. So, so there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we're done. Oh, we're done. Okay, great. Um, thank you so much for, for that. You're welcome. Mm-hmm. Thank you for doing that voodoo that you did so well. <laughs> um, we'll talk about this again afterwards, mm-hmm. why you don't know Mel Brooks, but that's good again. We'll... Mm-hmm. I'm going to have patience with you okay. on this one. <laughs> you have no choice. Okay. He won the freaking Medal of Freedom from Barack Obama because he's such a comedic genius. Anyway. Why would so I now, care? Because like, Mel Brooks. Baseballs? I forgot. Forget it. Okay. Oh, it's baseball related. No, no. Spaceballs. Holy mackerel. <laughs> please. Please. You're giving me a heart attack. <laughs> Spaceballs. <Okay>. Spaceballs. <clears throat> Are you done? Yeah. We're not done, though. We are now going to enter our last segment, of course, the ever-fun, sometimes filled with pop culture references, Uh fun SEO send-off question. This week we're asking, if Google used emoji, which one would it use the most? I can't believe we never asked this before. Thank you for the question. That's your question. It's brilliant. I thought it was great. You said we shouldn't use it because you're... (laughs) Always anti your own questions, I'm but insecure. I like this one. Yeah. No, you're not. No, I'm not. Um, but I can't believe we never answered this one before. Maybe we have, and I forgot. Who knows? But it's possible. <laughs> okay. That has almost no, happened I a few times. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, you want to go first? Uh, sure. Okay. Um, my guess would be, you know, that uh, emoji that mm-hmm. rolls its eyes. Yeah. So yeah, that one. Why? Because I feel like Google would just be like done with everyone's bs you know Ooh, what i mean i, I went in a like... very similar direction oh, really? yes yes yeah. great nice. minds you got great minds or, <laughs> or the greatest minds oh mm, okay i went with you know the um the emoji with the guy or girl um slapping themselves on the, on the face <laughs> yes. like oh my god this is like so stupid <laughs> which is like google must say to, like every time people in the SEO world talk about like an update here's what happened oh god they said that 
Or here's what Google, I think, is up to. And no, you should do this with your links. And Google's like <laughs> slapping itself in the face. Oh, we're pretty similar. Yeah, they're very similar. Oh, right. So that right. was good. Yeah. Wow, that's the first time we've ever been on the same page. <laughs> now we only knew who Mel Brooks was. We could both be on the same page with that as well. And that will do it for this week's version of the InSearch SEO podcast. Don't forget to tune in again next Tuesday for an all-new episode. You know it's been InSearch because we're all in search of something. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.